So I drove up to the house about seven or eight. And I yelled to the cabbie, yo home, smell you later. I looked at my kingdom. I was finally there to sit on my throne as the Prince of Bel-Air. <laughs> so I want to start with a question today. Who is your king? Who is your king? Now, uh, we are in this series, Old Testament, in seven weeks. And we've been walking through the timeline of the Old Testament. Because, you know, if you take the Old Testament and you just read it, start to finish, it might be a little confusing because the Old Testament is not organized in chronological order. It's organized based on the kinds of books in it. So it's helpful to, to understand the big picture of what God is doing in the Old Testament, to understand the little things that are happening within it and what that means for us today. So that's what we're doing in this series. And we've created this great little tool for you called the Old Testament Timeline. So if you don't have one of these, you can get one of these. In fact, if you want one, you can raise your hand and Ben uh, right back here is gonna bring one to you. Uh, we've got a couple over here on this side, one down this way. Oh, Carlton's got you. All right, and Emery over here and then one right down over here too. Okay, um, what we've done is we've broken the Old Testament up into six categories or six time periods. And through the series, we're walking through each one of them. And you might say, well, this is Old Testament in seven weeks. That's right, because there's one group of people that doesn't have their own time period. They're throughout the time periods and that's the prophets and you'll see them down at the bottom. So we've done this as a way for you to not only have a, a really clear, simple picture of the progress that happens through the Old Testament, but also as a way of memorizing it as well, which is pretty simple to do. If you can memorize the lyrics to the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, all right, you can memorize the timeline of the Old Testament. It's really not that hard when you have a tool like this. And actually, when I walk through the timeline of the Old Testament, I haven't memorized now. When I walk through it, this is how I picture it as I'm going through. So God, it's the story of how God began building his people and teaching human beings to love him and serve him and honor him and follow him. And so we start off with the founders and the founders are where it all begins. Can anybody tell me who's, with the, who's part of the founders without cheating and looking at your thing? Noah. Who's, Noah, yeah, Noah's one of the founders. Who else? Adam, right? Adam, you've got creation, Adam, Eve, and then Noah. It's the first six chapters or so of, of the, or 11 chapters or so of the Bible. So you've got Adam, Eve, um, and Noah as the founders. Then God decides he's gonna start building his special people, his family. So we have a section called the fathers. Now who can tell me who the first father is? Abraham, Abraham that's right. Abraham and his son, Isaac, and then his son, and then one of his sons, Joseph, right? So what God is doing is he's making promises and he's teaching them how to be his people, how to be his family. Starts with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, famously loves one of them more than the others, at least. Well, that's not what it appears. It's what's actually true. And so he's got this son, Joseph, that he gives this beautiful coat to. His brothers sell him into slavery. Joseph faces all kinds of adversity. We're actually gonna do a whole series at the end of this year on the life of Joseph and how he faced each of those kinds of adversity in his life and how we can face adversity as well. So Joseph ends up in Egypt and his brothers in uh, face a famine. Egypt has food, his brothers don't. They have to come and ask for food and he has to decide whether to forgive them. And he does, he does the right thing. And so all of Israel, that's Jacob's other name, all of Israel moves to Egypt. That's how they end up there. 
So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph brings them into Egypt. And what happens is Joseph dies, the Pharaoh dies, and the new Pharaoh decides he needs to put the Israelites in slavery to keep them under control. But God needs to break them out of that slavery. And so he raises up the next section, our third section, which are the deliverers. All right, and who are the deliverers? Moses and yeah, Caleb and Joshua together. So Moses leads them out of Egypt and they, they wander in the desert. Joshua leads them into the promised land. Once they're in the promised land, they have, God tells them specifically, you need to clear out all these other nations because they're gonna corrupt your faith. They're gonna cause you to worship other gods. And he tells them they need to clear them all out. But guess what? He doesn't do it. That's why our lesson last week was you need to do what God says all the way. They didn't do it all the way. And so they ended up with this chaotic time where they didn't have a formal government and God just raised up leaders on an as-needed basis called judges. So that's the fourth section, the period of the judges. But then what would happen is chaos would reign, then God would raise up a judge, and the, earth would, the land would have rest. You remember that terminology from last week? The land would have rest for a period of time, and then the judge would die, and chaos would ensue again. And the very last verse in the book of Judges said, um, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So in the middle of this chaos is where we find ourselves today, in the middle of all of that chaos, there's a judge uh, is raised up named Samuel, and he's a good judge. He's also a prophet. He speaks for the Lord. But Samuel's getting later in, in his years, and he knows he needs to think about his succession plan. And so he decides to raise up his sons to follow after him. But unfortunately, his sons are corrupt. And so when the people see that, they finally have had enough of this up and this down and this all over the place. And they come to Samuel and they say, we want a king. We want to be like other nations. We want to have a king like they do, a guy who sits on the throne. This makes perfect sense to me. I see this exact same scenario play out with my kids. Okay? I have three of them, uh, J.D., Jairus, and Josie. They're all J's. I know. We're that family. We didn't set out to be that family, but once you're two kids in, you're kind of locked in, especially when my name's John and my wife's name is Jess. So, uh, you know, you don't, have the, you don't have the fifth child to be like, why does my name start with a P? <laughs> you know, all else is a J. So anyway, we kind of fell into it. But, um, but uh, JD's the oldest, Jairus is the middle, and Josie's the, the, little, the little baby girl. And um, so let's, I see this happen when they decide that they want to make up a game. Because when they make up the game, of course, JD is the one who's going to step out into the forefront. He's the oldest. He's the most talkative. He's probably the loudest. And so he's the one who's going to start off determining what the rules are going to be for this game. So he'll start it off. And then eventually, though, Jairus and Josie realize he's, these rules seem to favor one particular child. And when the, the, the light finally goes off, that JD is swinging things in his favor because he's making the rules, Jairus will act and he'll tackle JD. He will, he's the younger son, but he will assert his physical dominance and just lay JD out. Now Jairus is in charge by brute force. And Jairus will begin making the rules to the game. Well, what does Jairus do? Bends the rules in his favor, of course. And Josie finally, she's finally caught on. And so Josie's tactic is big crocodile tears. She just slips into little baby girl mode. She'll get her cute face. This is her cute face. She goes. <laughs> and then the tears will start rolling and the boys toddle around her. Oh, Josie, it's okay. Partly because they love her and they protect her, which is a good thing. And, and they're her sister. And partly because they don't want mom and dad to know that Josie's crying and find out why. 
But Josie will then rise into power and she'll start making the rules and eventually guess what happens? She bends the rules in her favor and it's only when that happens that finally they all agree on one thing at the same time and at the exact same moment all of them scream, Daddy! (laughs) Why? Because they need the king. (laughs) (laughs) They need someone to rule over them who can enforce the rules. And that's what the Israelites are thinking. We need a king. They look at other nations. They got these kings and these palaces who are ruling over everything and commanding the armies and everybody respects them and reveres them. And, And they've got this royalty complex, you know, where they just love royalty, kind of like us. We don't like dictators, okay? We don't like that, but we love the idea of royalty, kings and queens and prince. Most little girls want to be a princess, right? I mean, we just, we just had a royal wedding, right? How many, how many of you woke up early so you could watch the royal wedding? Be honest with you, you got the bug. My wife is raising her hand somewhere. She woke up early to watch that. Hey, listen, I'm a, I'm a Suits fan, so I love Meghan Markle as much as the next person, but, but we've got a problem with royalty, with this, this idea of kings and queens and princesses and castles and all this stuff. It's what all our stories are about. And they did too. They said, we need a king. We want a king. And so Samuel, he goes to God and he, he, says, he says, God, the people want a king. What do we do? And this is what God says. All right, this is in 1 Samuel chapter 8. All right, 1 Samuel chapter 8. If you want to turn there, we're going to be there for just a minute. Um, this is really where the story of the king starts at the beginning of 1 Samuel. Now then, this is God speaking to Samuel. He says, obey their voice. Only, so he says, okay, they want a king. They can have a king. That's fine. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king that will reign over you. He said, basically, okay, so you want a king so bad. Let me tell you what's going to happen. You need to know what you're really asking for here because the king is going to rule over you, which means he's going to take your stuff. It also means that your sons who you love so much and you need around the house, he's going to put into the, to the army. You're going to have an official army. He's going to take your, your plowshares and he's going to turn them into weapons. He's going to make you forge weapons for him. He's going, to, he's going to, all of you that are farmers, you're going to have to grow food, but not for yourself. You're going to have to grow it for him. Your daughters, he's going to put into labor too. So be careful, Samuel says, be careful about asking for a king because I'm not so sure the grass is greener on the other side of the fence like you think it is. He said the power is going to go to this king's head. And that's true. That's what happens, isn't it? We actually have a phrase for that in our culture. I don't know if you've ever heard this phrase, but it's pretty, pretty common. I've heard it many times. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. You've heard that? Absolute power corrupts absolutely. In a vacuum of accountability, corruption always takes that space. And it doesn't matter really what the role is. It could be a king, which he's warning him. It will be in this case. It could be, uh, you know, it turns into a dictator, a totalitarian situation. It could be a politician, who has too much power, not enough checks and balances, not enough accountability. I mean, how much corruption is there in the political arena, right? It could be a CEO of a company who doesn't have the right people around them. They're surrounded by yes men or yes women, and so they do whatever they want, and then the major scandal and corruption happens. It happens to pastors. Don't have enough accountability in the right systems in place around them. Don't have the right character to handle the responsibility and they crash and burn. It happens all the time. 
It happens to fathers and mothers. I'm the man of the house. This is my kingdom. This is my domain. You will do what I say. Boys, pride goes to our heart. Arrogance goes to our head. And the promise of a king never lives up to the reality of a king. And that's what Samuel, God is trying to get through their thick skulls through Samuel. Arrogance follows power. And so he goes to him and he lists all this stuff that he's going to do. And then in verse 18, Samuel says, and in that day, when he does all that stuff, you will cry out because of your king, whom you've chosen for yourselves. You made your bed, you'll, you'll lie in it. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us. They said, we're willing to take that chance because we want a king. So they get a king. Samuel goes and anoints a man named Saul and he's, he is everything they could have wanted in a king. Now, Saul didn't think very much of himself to begin with, but that changed pretty quickly. Saul was a, was a big man. He was a strong man. He was, he was strong in war. He was, he was well known. He, 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 was, he was good looking. I mean, tall, dark, handsome. The whole, he liked long walks on the beach. From what I understand, might have been the desert. Nevertheless, there was water at some point, right? This is, this is Saul. This is the king they're looking for. And so he gets anointed their king. But Saul runs into the same problem that we've already identified, the same problem that befalls anybody who has too much power. Pride goes to his heart. God is supposed to be the king of Israel, but they want this man. Let me tell you a story about Saul. You can read it in 1 Samuel chapter 13. His son is named, uh, Saul's son is named Jonathan. That's a great name to give a kid, by the way. If any of you are considering giving a child a name, Jonathan would be a fantastic choice. Um, totally unrelated, but that's my name too. And he, uh, so his son Jonathan has about a thousand men and he gets this great military victory at, at a place called Gilgal. He, he takes over a bunch of Philistines and, and uh, Saul's like, oh, this is our chance. All right, Jonathan's gotten this great victory. I'll go down, I'll join him. We'll get a big win over the Philistines. Israel and the Philistines are fighting all the time. Um, and the reason they're fighting so much, as you see in scripture, uh, is because they're neighbors. And good fences make good neighbors and they didn't have a good fence. And so Israel lived in the hill country and Philistines lived down near the sea and they would fight for the land in between. So Saul hears that Jonathan gets this great victory. He's like, all right, we're going to go down. We're going to take advantage of this momentum and we're going to take down the Philistines. So Jonathan's got about a thousand guys. Saul has about 2000 guys. He goes and they meet up at a, at a place called Gilgal. And uh, they, they tell Samuel the plan and Samuel says, fine, you can go up against the Philistines. Remember Samuel's the prophet of God. He says, that's fine. It's cool. But you need to wait seven days. And after seven days, I'll come to you. And when I come to you, I'm going to make a sacrifice to God. Then you go into battle and then you'll have the victory. Saul's like, great, no problem. We got this thing on lock. And so he gets ready for battle with Jonathan and waits on Samuel. So first day, everybody's pumped. They got this one big win in their resume. They got it under their belt. They're ready for the big battle that's coming. Everybody's excited. Day two rolls around and they look down and they see the Philistine army, which was first a bunch of ragtag guys. And now they just start to see chariots showing up and horsemen showing up and more troops showing up. And they're starting to get maybe just a little bit nervous, but they're still confident. Day three, more troops, 
So many that there's like the sand on the seashore. Day four rolls around. They decide, you know, let's just see what we're up against. We got 3,000 guys. Let's go down there and count how many people they have now. And so they go up over the hill and they're spying and looking at the Philistines and they count 30,000. 10 times as many chariots. Just the chariots, 30,000 chariots, besides 6,000 horsemen and so many soldiers that they can't even count them. Now they're starting to get really nervous, right? Day five rolls around. They start hiding. They're hiding all over the place. They're finding caves to hide in, hills to hide behind. They're hiding in cisterns. It even says they're hiding in rocks. I don't even know how you do that, how you hide in a rock, but they're hiding in the rocks, trying to escape. Day six rolls around, more people are showing up and they start bailing. They, they, they leave, they desert the army until the 3,000 men that they had now is only 600 men on day six. Day seven rolls around. The day that Samuel is supposed to show up and Saul's getting antsy. You can imagine he's thinking, oh, this is bad. This is so bad. I'm, I'm the king. I have to get wins under my belt. I have to, we got to take over the Philistines. I thought we had momentum. Now we got nothing. And so he's waiting for Samuel. He's waiting for, come on, Samuel. Come on, buddy. Come on. I know you're coming. I know you're coming. I know you're coming. And about the middle of the day comes and he knows, he, he's afraid. He's afraid that the, the the, the, the Philistines are going to come and attack them and they're not going to be ready. And so time's ticking and so candles burning. So he decides, all right, here's what we'll do. I'll just make the offering. I'll make the sacrifice and then we'll go into battle. We can't wait on Samuel any longer. We don't even know if the guy's coming. So he, he takes an animal and he puts it on the altar and he sacrifices it. And no sooner does he sacrifice the, the animal than Samuel shows up. And uh, I, it, it didn't happen like this, but I picture it like this. I picture Saul gets the animal up on there and he, he says a prayer and he puts the animal on, he lights the altar on fire and, uh, and as he's standing there, he, ex- he looks out and he expects to see everybody cheering and preparing to go into battle, but they're all just staring at him blankly and he stands there for a second and then says, he's right behind me, isn't he? <laughs> you know, that's how I picture that, Samuel just standing by his shoulder. It's not actually what happened, but it's a fun picture. Anyway, um, so 1 Samuel chapter 13, let's read exactly what happens. 1 Samuel 13, starting in verse 10. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. A perfect timing. And Saul went out to meet and greet him. That's how I know he wasn't over his shoulder. So he goes out to meet and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, well, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I've not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself, I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you've done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord, your God, with which he commanded you. For Then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. So that means his son, Jonathan, is not going to be the next king of Israel. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept 
what the Lord commanded you. Now, I, I don't know about you, that seems a little harsh, right? I mean, he still offered the sacrifice, didn't he? He, he was worried I would be worried too. At some point when the pressure's on, you just gotta, you gotta you know, lift yourself up by your bootstraps and get something done, right? And that's, that's all Saul did. What's the big deal? Well, here's the big deal. And this is not a one-time occurrence. This is a pattern of behavior with Saul. When he was waiting seven days and God was supposed to be on the throne, he got scared. He lost his patience. And he sat down. He sat down where he didn't belong. Even though he was the king, he sat down where he he didn't belong. And before we're too harsh was Saul. Before we, let's not judge him too quickly because we do exactly the same thing over and over and over and over again. In fact, we're born thinking we belong in this seat. We're born thinking that everything, everyone exists to serve us. We're born thinking we're the king, we're the queen, we're the prince. And it's a pattern for us, just like it's a pattern for Saul. And what do we do? How dare you take my parking spot? I had my eyes set on that spot from the moment I pulled into the parking lot. That is my kingdom. That is my domain. How dare you get there first? How dare you ask me to take out the trash? Can you not see that I am comfortable on my throne? Can you not see that I'm playing a very important game of racing? You exist to serve me. So why are you, why are you fighting with me? Why are you disagreeing with me? Why are you disturbing me? Why are you inconveniencing me? Why do you not see that I'm the king? That I make the rules? that I decide what's right and wrong, that I decide what we're going to do. This is the seat we are born believing we belong in. But we don't belong in it any more than Saul does. This seat is reserved for the one who can actually handle the power. Because we can. As arrogance goes to our heart, pride goes to our head. You know, we even treat God, we even treat God the same way sitting from this chair. God, you exist to serve me. And we make foolish statements like, well, God, if you don't do this, I won't believe in you. If you don't serve me, I won't even believe that you exist, as if that changes the fact that he exists at all. We think, God, if you don't fix this in my life, God, you need to change this about my situation. God, you need to change my family. You need to change the, 
You need to change my finances. You need to change the way I look. You need to change all of this stuff about me. As if he exists to serve us. That is not the way it works. God did not exist to serve Saul. Saul existed to serve God, but he got that backwards over and over and over and over again. And God did raise up a man after his own heart, David. You might remember David and Goliath, that man, that one. David had the same problem though, even though he was a man after God's own heart and David made his own mistakes. Pride went to his head too. He had a woman that he really wanted to be with, but she was married. So he used his power and his influence to get rid of her so he could have the woman he wanted. His son Solomon, although he asked for wisdom, was tremendously wise. Solomon had his vices and his mistakes too. And then after him, his son tries to take over and the whole kingdom splits. His people didn't get what they really wanted because they didn't know what they really wanted. See, we make terrible kings for a lot of different reasons. Let me give you a few. This This is the reason that, that Saul made a terrible king, same reason that we make terrible kings. First, we make terrible kings because we're insecure. We don't trust God. Saul looked around and he said, the people are scattering. That's what he said. The people were scattering. What was I supposed to do? He was scared. He did not trust the plan that God had put in place. Second reason we make terrible kings is because we blame other people for our mistakes. You remember what he said? Did you hear what he said? He said, when you didn't come at the appointed time. He said, Samuel, it's your fault. You didn't come when you said you would. Well, guess what? Samuel came when he said he would. (laughs) Just not at the moment that Saul needed him there. God's timing was slightly different than Saul's and he blamed Samuel for that change. Third reason, we fear what hasn't happened yet. It's called anxiety. I was afraid they were gonna come down and attack us at Gilgal. Well, they hadn't even moved. (laughs) Had no reason to believe they were coming to, to attack them. He just assumed they would. This is what we do in our heads. We fear what hasn't even happened yet. And oftentimes we spend a whole lot of time worrying about what won't even happen. And then the fourth thing, we make our own rules. So I forced myself to do it. We justify, I had to do it, I had no other choice. You know, something interesting, Samuel takes this real personally when they ask for a king. Because he was their judge, he was their leader, and he said, why do they want this guy? Why do they want a king? And he felt like they were, you know, like he wasn't enough. He struggled with that. And I just want you to hear very clearly what God says to Samuel, and I think it it encapsulates this whole thing. 1 Samuel 8, 7. The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of all the people in all they say to you, for they've not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. God said, Samuel, they haven't rejected you as a leader. They've rejected me as their leader. That's the problem is that there's no, there's not a one of us that belongs sitting in that chair. But what if I told you there is someone who belongs sitting in that chair? A king deserving of the seat. Because absolute power corrupts absolutely unless your king is absolutely incorruptible. 
there is a king who is absolutely incorruptible, a king who is without sin, a king who deserves the seat, that can handle the power, that can handle the glory that comes along with it, who makes the right rules and gives the right directives. And that king, what if I told you that that king comes directly from the line of King David? His name is Jesus. He wasn't born like a king. He was born in a barn. But he came to be a king, to establish a kingdom on earth. When you hear him talk, when you read his words, he says, for this reason I came to prepare people for the kingdom. But they did not accept him as the king. They rejected him as king. And the Jews put him on the cross without realizing that when they did that, they solidified the very reason that he came, which was to offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins and to sit down in the seat where he belongs so that we can take the position that we belong in. Jesus sits down here. He dies on the cross for our sins, pain for them. We can turn to him in faith and he forgives us. He rises again on the third day, proving he has power over sin and power over death. He has the power to sit here. He ascends to the Father and sits down where he belongs. Until the day when he returns, and this is what we're waiting for, the day when Jesus returns to sit on his throne on earth, Christ's kingdom. And what we can do, we can become a citizen of that kingdom now and wait for it and prepare for it and store up reward in it. But it begins when we recognize that we've sat in this seat and we need to get out. And so I've got to stand up and recognize that Jesus belongs here, not me. And I need to bow before the king. To give, to give my life to him. To accept him, to believe, to recognize the position that I belong in. Hope and freedom are found bowing before the king. If you're having problems in your marriage and you're wondering what in the world am I supposed to do, it starts by getting out of this chair and bowing before the king. Do you want to know what it feels like to, be, to feel successful and fulfilled like you're living out your purpose in life? You got to get out of this chair and bow before the king. You want to know what's next for you in your life and where you're supposed to be going and what path you're supposed to be on? You got to get out of this chair and you got to bow before the king. It's the only place that we're going to find hope and freedom because this is the position where we belong. It's this continual process. Here's the problem too. I, I don't know about you. I go through my life. I made the decision years and years and years ago to get out of the throne and to recognize Jesus belonged there and ask him to forgive my sins. And he forgave me for all of it. He forgave me for sat, sitting in his seat. But not just when I did it before, every time after, because I don't know about you, this is, I'm like Saul. 
I'd be like, Jesus, you're king. Jesus, you're king. Jesus, you're king. Oh no, what's happening in my life? God's not doing anything about it. What's that? The clock's ticking. People are scattering. I was afraid this was going to happen. And so I forced myself and I jumped back up into the chair and I take control again and I try to direct things again and I try to lead things again until at some point I realize, oh my goodness, what am I doing? I'm making a mess of this because I don't belong here. And I get back down and you know what? He'd already forgiven me for getting up there in the first place. And so I can say, I know you forgave me for that. I'm sorry. You be king. You tell me what to do. You tell me where to go. It's a continual process of bowing before the king. And the more time we spend down here, the more comfortable we get down here, the more natural it is for us to live down here instead of up here. And what we're doing is we're preparing. We're preparing for when Jesus returns and he sits in that seat. Well, we can see him in that seat. And we're not only going to get to be in that kingdom with him, but we're going to share in the reward, the inheritance that he has. And the more time we spend here, the more time we spend serving him, the more responsibility and opportunity we're going to have when he comes because he'll trust us. I love the way Paul puts this in Colossians chapter one, verses nine through 14. And so from the day we heard, from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with all knowledge of his will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Maybe to kneel in a manner worthy of the Lord. Fully pleasing to him. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you. I love this. Who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We can have all of that. We have to get out of that chair. And maybe that's a decision for you to make today to say, I've been sitting on that throne my entire life. I've been tried to be in control my entire life. And all I keep finding is that I can't handle it. All I keep finding is that, that it's not the right place for me to be. And I believe today, I believe that God loves me and that there is a king who deserves to be in that chair. And it's Jesus. Maybe today you believe for the first time that he died for your sins and you ask him to forgive you believe that he rose again. And then he wants to take us through this process. And maybe this is where you're in process. Maybe this is where you are like me, where we're learning to get out of the chair over and over and over again. We're learning to kneel before the king, to follow him, to serve him, to listen to him, to love him, to worship him, to glorify him. The only king who ever lived who deserved it. We need to remove ourselves from where we don't belong and put God where he does. Let's go to him right now. Let's pray to God. Bring our commitments to him. God, we come to you and we love you. You, you are God and we are not God. Christ, you gave your life for us. 
You sacrificed yourself for us and you deserve your position. You deserve to be king. And so we love you. We serve you. And God, I pray that if there's someone here today who needs to make for the first time a decision to take themselves out of the chair, to to put their faith in you instead of putting their faith in themselves. And today they say, I'm changing today. I'm following God today. That in this moment, that they would confess that faith to you, that they would say, God, I believe. I believe in Jesus. I believe that he died for me. I believe that he rose again. Forgive me. And that in that change, in this moment, you would change their heart, God. And that you you bring us around them to, to help lead and guide and show as we all together figure this thing out, how to serve you and how to honor you and how to love you and how to build up reward and build up responsibility and how to love each other and how to do things the way it will be done in your kingdom, not the way it's done here on earth now. And that as we're learning and we're getting out of that chair and letting you lead in our life more and more and more, that you'll bless us together, that you'll reward us, that there will be reward not only waiting for us beyond this life, but even now, that you would give us your peace, that you would give us your joy, that you would give us your comfort, that you would give us your direction, that you would display your power through us, that we would have the opportunity to participate in a kingdom that is far above anything this world could possibly offer us. Help us as we do that, as we recognize you, Jesus, as our King, our Savior. We come to you. It's in your name we pray, amen.